Welcome to Always On Mission, evangelizing in challenging times. I'm Rosemary Maffey. And I'm Tom Lyman. We're coming to you from the Archdiocese of Boston. We hope to bring you some joy and encouragement during this challenging time. And we do that every week by profiling a saint, as well as talking with somebody who is evangelizing today. Welcome back to our listeners. We want to remind you to please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you're listening to us on Apple, please do rate us. And if you're enjoying these conversations like we are, feel free to give us a high rating. Now let's jump into it. How's it going, Tom? Not bad, Rosemary. How about yourself? Good. Did you have a good weekend? I did. And you? Yeah. It's just been such a joy to be back at Mass and to receive the Eucharist. And wow, it's so nourishing to receive the Eucharist as we continue in this pandemic and also navigate through these last couple of weeks, which have been very challenging to say the least as the events have unfolded after the horrific killing of George Floyd. And we really encourage our listeners, if you haven't already, to be sure to take a look at Cardinal Sean's statement in response to that great tragedy. Absolutely. I mean, this is a time when the faithful Catholic is drawn to prayer, you know, uh, prayer and action for sure. But um, one of the first steps is to turn to our Lord and to entrust these things, the healing that we need and guidance for ourselves and our society and for the peace that we so desperately long for in our hearts, and our communities, um, wherever they may be. Yeah. And our guest today, Alessandro Di Santo, provides us with some great tools to really increase our and enhance our prayer life, which is really critical as we move forward in these challenging times. And I also understand, Tom, that the saint you're sharing with us today, well, actually someone on his path toward canonization, not only gives us a great example of how to grow in holiness during immense suffering and struggle, but also showcases what it looks like to uphold the dignity of all God's children. That's right. Today, we're going to profile Venerable Father Augustus Tolton. And Father Tolton, uh, he's not yet a canonized saint of the church, but his cause for canonization is en route. And, we'll continue uh, to pray he, that that happens. Absolutely, we shall. And uh, it was not long ago that Pope Francis uh, declared his virtues to be heroic. You know, having a life of heroic virtue is one of the first steps uh, uh, when when someone's cause for canonization is launched by a diocesan inquiry and then sent forward to the congregation for saints in the Vatican. And so Father Tolton, I first heard about him a few years ago from some, some friends actually who live in Rome, John and Ashley Neronia, who they run No Rome Tours as well as the Truth, Truth and Beauty Institute in Rome. But the two of them are from central Illinois. And they were very excited to uh, to mention to me Father Tolton and his advancing cause for canonization because he is a local native out there in central Illinois. Uh, and also our, our friend who we spoke with recently, uh, Lorna DeRose, she proposed that we actually take the time to profile venerable Father Tolton this week. And so we're happy to do so because he really is an extraordinary example uh, just of someone who who really pursued a life of holiness and who shared that with others and brought many other people into relationship with Christ. Let's take a look at his early life. Born into slavery in Missouri in 1854, young Augustus Tolton escaped with his mother to freedom in Illinois and was raised in Quincy, where he found a kind mentor in Father Peter McGurr, who helped him enter seminary in Rome for the propagation of the faith as a missionary, since every American seminary had rejected him based on his race. He was ordained in Rome in 1886 and sailed back to New York. Now, you may know, Rosemary, that it is um, a, a common tradition for uh, a newly ordained priest to have well planned out his first mass and perhaps his first mass in different places that are special to him. And so for Father Tolton, he had a dream of celebrating his first mass with the black community in New York City. And so as soon as he got off the boat onto American soil in Manhattan, he made his way to St. Benedict the Moore Parish, located at Bleecker and Downing Street in New York City. And the congregation was mostly composed of free African-Americans. And so this is 1886, of course. Uh, and so in July 11th, in the presence of a full church, the congregation saw the first black priest in the United States offer mass in their church. And so 
really exciting. Just imagine the excitement. Uh, the newspaper, uh, the New York World writes of the event, long before the hour fixed, every seat in the Church of St. Benedict the Moor was filled. Black people, old and young, came from all parts of the city and many from out of town. So this was not only deeply awaited by the young Father Tolton, but also by the congregation who were so excited for the first uh, priest like them from their community. And then let's hear about the hearty welcome he received once he got back to Quincy. Yes, so coming back to Quincy, Illinois, we must remind our Boston area listeners, Father McGurr, his Irish priest mentor, began to make plans for a big welcome back. So he actually chartered a railroad car to take him along with friends, black and white, to Springfield, Illinois. Uh, and that car would be attached to the train to Quincy that would take him um, take him back home. And so as the train pulls into Quincy, a brass band is playing, Holy God, we praise thy name. You know, the real Catholic... Uh, Catholic anthem, and the crowd at the station waved and cheered. Just imagine, like you may have seen in some of these movies, that period movies that that, that depict uh, the triumphant arrival of a hero home or a presidential candidate or whoever it is, um, you know. And he's met there by a carriage drawn by four white horses. They took Father Tolton through the streets crowded with well wishes to St. Peter's Church, which this was the community that had really raised him up. And so at that church, the school children, more priests and more people cheered. Uh, and as you know, Rosemary, maybe you've experienced this. There's a custom of the newly ordained priest offering his first blessing. Have you ever had that? No. Oh my goodness. Well, you've got to do this. So after the ordination, you line up and you can get the first blessing from any one of the newly ordained. And there's a special indulgence attached to the blessing of a priest, along with all the other usual conditions for an indulgence. Yeah, communion, confession, saying the creed, all these things. And so hundreds and hundreds of people were waiting to come to the communion rail to ask for his blessing. But before doing that, Father Tolton laid his hands on the head of his own mother, invoking God's blessing on this woman whose Catholic faith had really um, had guided her life and, 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 and seen her through every trial over the years. Uh, so really, uh, a little bit about life at St. Joseph's. He was assigned to be the mission pastor of St. Joseph's in Quincy, Illinois. The United States, remember, is a mission territory at this time. It would remain so until into the 20th century. A little description of life at St. Joseph's Church. So every Sunday, the church is filled to capacity. Father Tolton is highly esteemed by all. Everyone likes his sermons. But though for the past 10 years, much had been done for the conversion of the African-American community in Quincy, the results were, were not huge. There had been a few converts, but as a whole, the Negro mission, as they called it, had, they felt it almost had not paid off. The school was well attended, and many children were baptized, but there was still a great poverty in that community. And one of the sisters who uh, attended to the school found that the children were so poor uh, that some came to school just in the winter just to get warm. Uh, so there really were a lot of corporal needs um, that had to be attended to before the spiritual needs could be met. But Father Tolton uh, had an attraction for both black and white. Um, you know, he, there, there was a, actually a constant presence of white families in his church, and he encouraged this, Father Tolton, because he knew that they, they were making contributions that kept the church and the school open. So it's interesting to see that even back then, uh, there was a, a community of people that supported his ministry and supported him personally uh, from, from the white community, uh, that there had been this, this kind of positive relationship between the two. Um, despite the fact that there were, really was a poor relationship um, between some white parishes and the African-American community, uh, even among Catholic African-Americans, very sad, but true. You know, whites as well as blacks stood in line to go to confession and get spiritual advice from Father Tolton. And he was also, Tolton was also active in the temperance movement. He had seen the damage that alcohol could do in any community. He advocated, you know, really for temperance. Really, the temperance could, could mean both the kind of a moderate consumption of alcohol or the total abstention from, from alcohol. Uh, and that was something that really swept the country. It was a national movement and one that also stretched around the world at that time. 
Uh, so what did people say about Father Tolton? The, uh, the local newspaper, the Quincy Journal, says that uh, he has fine educational training. His oratorical ability, his rich and full voice, full, full voice rather, which falls pleasantly on the ear and his wholehearted earnestness. You know, the church was often filled, you know, SRO, standing room only, um, on Sundays. And on these occasions, with a simple gesture that the children understood, he would summon them to the altar, which probably wasn't the most common thing. The children would rush into the sanctuary and sit on the floor around the altar, making room for the adults to have more seats. We see this sometimes today, you know, so it's kind of, it's actually heartwarming to hear of it happening even back in the 1880s uh, in this packed church by this really charismatic young priest. Obviously, it's beautiful to hear about the warm welcome that Father Augustus received and the great support he got from both the blacks and whites. However, that said, you and I both know that we're on, when we're on a path to holiness, when we're pursuing the Lord and sharing him with others, obstacles are gonna come our way. And so share with us a little bit about some of the opposition he received from a new pastor in a neighboring parish. Yeah, this is really a sad chapter um, in the story of Father Tolton. Uh, one that caused some great suffering, that a new pastor arrived in the neighboring parish. And that particular parish was a German parish, uh, not to mean that it couldn't have been any other ethnicity, but in this case it was. Uh, and this pastor openly used racial slurs to refer to Father Tolton, particularly terrible. This was really the first time that Father Tolton experienced this kind of cruelty from a priest. He'd experienced it from other kids, from other citizens, but not from priests. He, you know, he, he had experienced the rejection from seminary, but they weren't using racial slurs. So this guy is really scraping the bottom of the barrel here. And uh, to top it off, um, there really were, I mean, he stopped at almost nothing. So this guy also was jealous, jealous of the financial successes of St. Joseph's. And he was particularly jealous that even white folks were flocking to his parish. And he began to claim that contributions from white people at his parish belonged at his parish instead, which is particularly egregious. I mean, no, no priest is granted jurisdiction over particular ethnicities. There are no limits, such, you know, limited limits by race in the Catholic church. I mean, uh, we can all attend the church of our choosing. Um, you know, in those days, the, the territory of your parish would have been more canonically guarded. You know, it would have been important to attend the, the parish that you were uh, living in, but there must have been a reason that these white folks attended um, St. Joseph's Church, Father Tolton's church. And so this began to be a real threat. If, if the white folks who were so generous to the mission of this parish and school um, were taken away, uh, both the parish and school would fail. And Father Gus knew this. So some suggested that Father Gus should begin expecting, accepting invitations to speaking engagements to raise money for the, the mission. And he did. So he said, I'm not going to let, you know, Father Weiss over here uh, stop me. I'm going to find another way to support the parish. And so he began accepting invitations to speak in New York and Boston and Washington, D.C. and Baltimore and Galveston, Texas, traveling nationally to make his, his message known. And I'd like to read you a beautiful quote from Father Tolton here. And this is one of his speeches. He says this. He says, and I quote, the Catholic Church deplores a double slavery that of the mind and that of the body. She endeavors to free us both, free us of both. He says, I was a poor slave boy, but the priests of the church did not disdain me. It was through the influence of one of them that I became what I am tonight. I must now give praise to that son of the Emerald Isle, Father Peter McGurr, pastor of St. Peter's Church in Quincy, who promised me that I would be educated and who kept his word. It was the priests of the church who taught me to pray and to forgive my persecutors. It was through the direction of a sister of Notre Dame, Sister Herlind, that I learned to interpret the Ten Commandments. And then I also beheld for the first time the glimmering light of truth and the majesty of the church. In this church, we do not have to fight for our rights because we are black. She had colored saints, Augustine, Benedict the Moor, Monica. The church is broad and liberal. She is the church for our people. How beautiful that the Lord really gave him a platform through which he could speak the truth and love of our beautiful Catholic church. That's awesome. 
Truly, you know, and I, he speaks in, you know, this is the late 1880s of the universality of the church, which is nothing new. The church has always had a big tent and had an extraordinary diversity of ethnicities and races and languages. You know, we can't forget that the church itself has an ancient foundation in Africa. That's why he, refo- he, he refers to St. Augustine and St. Monica, who we may not often think of it this way, but they're African saints. Like they, they were natives of Africa, of what we today would call Tunisia, in those days, Carthage. Um, and so uh, an extraordinary history that we have, and, and he references it in this way and draws strength from it. Don't forget also the ancient foundation of the church in Ethiopia, which goes right back to Philip and the eunuch uh, in sacred scripture in the Acts of the Apostles. Um, So an extraordinary history in Africa uh, as well as in the United States. But sadly, the challenges that uh, Father Tolton faced from this neighboring pastor did not end. And he wrote to his superior in Rome, he says, you know, there is a certain German priest who is jealous and contemptuous. He abuses me in many ways and has told the bishop to send me out of this place. I will gladly leave here just to be away from this priest. I appealed to Bishop Ryan, his local bishop, and he also advises me to go elsewhere. So the cardinal sought some more information and finally wrote to the Bishop of Alton. And the bishop said this, Father Augustine Tolton is a good priest. However, He wants to establish a type of society here which is not feasible in this place. So sad. I mean, to to read those words is saddening to think that the society that Father Tolton envisioned, this kind of big tent church, was somehow not feasible in in Quincy of 1889. And so finally, Father Tolton begged begged the bishop in Rome to be sent to Chicago. And so he goes to Chicago to be sent to the African American Catholics there. But three and a half years after Father Tolton had become pastor there, St. Joseph's closed along with its school. And that's not the end of the story in in Quincy for St. Joseph's. It would be revived, but it endured uh, a time of trial, sadly, uh, due to, well, perhaps the great accomplishments and the holiness of Father Tolton. So let's hear about his time in Chicago, Tom. Yes, so Father Tolton arrives in Chicago before Christmas of 1889, um, and he just began renting a a simple apartment there, and he became appointed as pastor of St. Augustine's Church with full pastoral jurisdiction over all what were referred to as Negro Catholics in Chicago. And this is kind of the beginning of what became known as kind of Black Catholic ministry. It was suggested that they move out of the basement of the church they had been operating in and build a proper church. And so he gained the assistance of what was then known as the Negro and Indian Fund. We still have the yearly collection for Black and Indian Catholics that was set up by the U.S. bishops at the Council of Baltimore. I mean, we're talking mid-19th century. This is, I think, the council that gave us the, um, the Baltimore Catechism as well. So this is an historic council for the United States that still has an effect today. He also received assistance from Mother Catherine Drexel herself in the amount of $36,000. That's an extraordinary amount of money in 1889. He had come to know her from what was known as the Catholic Colored Congress in Washington, D.C. So to me, it's fascinating to hear of something like this, a gathering like this, that, you know, we still have national gatherings of different types, uh, you know, within the church. And to hear about this type of national gathering in the church of those attending to the spiritual and corporal needs of African-American Catholics in those days, to me, is fascinating. I would love to learn more about that. Sadly, though, uh, Rosemary, he, he... he began to suffer in his in health. He was working himself to the bone um, and sometimes would become so tired during mass that the server would have to bring him a chair because he couldn't stand to give his homily. Here's what uh, a Franciscan, a secular Franciscan said about him. She wrote, I attended the 10 o'clock mass with Father Tolton's congregation and I had the opportunity of speaking with the Negro priest. I thought he was going to attend the Congress but he said he was feeling so ill, he was afraid he would not be able to undertake the journey. Poor father, he is left to struggle alone in poverty. We are witnesses of his ardent charity and self-denying zeal. So here we're hearing more characteristics 
of a saint, someone who was evangelizing in a challenging time, in, in under the conditions of racism, under the conditions of the kind of uh, poverty that was enduring since the time of emancipation and in post reconstruction, uh, and which in, in many ways endures to this day in many places. He himself lived in a kind of poverty. He brought his his mother and sister to live with him in Chicago. In those days, you know. Uh, you know, priests were free to do such a thing. Nowadays, that'd be quite uncommon. But he actually lived in a simple house and with his mother and sister. And this is what was said about him. They lived in a poorly furnished, but very clean house. The meals were simple affairs. A priest who was studying in Chicago stayed with Father Tolton and his mother. And this is what he wrote. He said, Father Tolton, his mother and I sat at a table having an oil cloth cover. A kerosene lamp stood in the middle. You can just picture this as kind of lamp in this simple house, kind of glowing, warming the room. On the wall directly behind Father Tolton's place hung a large black rosary. As soon as the evening meal was over, Father Tolton would rise and take the beads from the nail. He kissed the large crucifix reverently. We all knelt on the bare floor while the Negro priest in a low voice led the prayers with deliberate slowness and with unmistakable fervor. Wow. Father Tolton really united all these sufferings with Christ on the cross, Tom, is such a beautiful example of that. He truly did. And, um, you know, this, I think his, his, his fervor was catching, um, the spirit with it, you know, with which he lived his faith was, um, magnetic, was attractive, you know, and he was, this, this guy was African-American in every way and Catholic in every way. And I say African-American because in Rome, he would even entertain the fellow seminarians with some of the beautiful, um, you know, African spirituals that he grew up singing, you know, that is so much a part of even the African-American Catholic experience and the African-American Catholic worship experience. Um, so this this guy is is really something. He's 100% Catholic, 100% African-American. Uh, and I love... I love this unity, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, his authenticity in every way. So his death is sad. I mean, uh, he, he worked so hard, uh, who knows what condition that he had, but it became evident to people he wasn't well, his hands would be shaking as he delivered, as he distributed communion at the rail. Um, he was on his way to a priest retreat in the, the town of uh, Bourbonnais, Illinois. And it was a very hot day, 105 day, 105 degree uh, heat wave was sweeping the area. And walking to the retreat center, he became overcome and collapsed and died not long after. Um, and his gravestone says this, it says, Reverend Augustine Tolton, the first colored priest in the United States, born in Bush Creek, Rawls County, Missouri, April 1, 1854, ordained in Rome, Italy, April 24th, 1886, died July 9th, 1897, at the age of 43, Requiescat in Pace. And it said, uh, the story recounts in his uh, little biography here on the Archdiocese of Chicago website, the entourage from Chicago returned to the train station from their sad journey home. The local priests went back to St. Peter's Rectory to visit and discuss the events of recent days. No eulogy had been preached in Quincy, but those who understood Father Tolton's life was a eulogy. Some people could easily judge that his life was not a success, but God calls his servants to be faithful, not successful. You know, what can we take from, from his story, Rosemary? What are some of the lessons that, that you hear from, from Father Tolton? Well, definitely a true surrender to the will of God, a union with him on the cross in our times of struggle, and a great fervor for upholding the dignity of each one of God's children. So thank you so much for sharing a little bit about Venerable Augustus Tolton's life. It's just such a wonderful example for us. Could you close us in a prayer? And this is the prayer uh, really for the canonization of Father Tolton. And within the prayer, there is uh, a place where you can request his intercession and mention your, your request. So I invite you now if there's some particular miracle, a particularly powerful thing you want to pray for, to just hold that in your heart and um, 
Also, to let you know that if you receive any spiritual or physical favor granted through prayer in Father Tolton's name, that you should write the Office of the Cardinal, Archdiocese of Chicago, 835 North Rush Street, Chicago, Illinois, 60611, zip code. Uh, that's the Office of the Cardinal in the Archdiocese of Chicago. So let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God, we give you thanks for your servant and priest, Father Augustus Tolton, who labored among us in times of contradiction, times that were both beautiful and paradoxical. His ministry helped lay the foundation for a truly Catholic, Catholic gathering in faith in our time. We stand in the shadow of his ministry. May his life continue to inspire us and imbue us with that confidence and hope that will forge a new evangelization for the church we love. Father in heaven, Father Tolton's suffering service sheds light upon our sorrows. We see them through the prism of your son's passion and death. If it be your will, O God, glorify your servant, Father Tolton, by granting the favor I now request through his intercession. so that all may know the goodness of this priest whose memory looms large in the church he loved. Complete what you have begun in us, that we might work for the fulfillment of your kingdom. Not to us the glory, but glory to you, O God, through Jesus Christ, your Son and our Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are our God, living and reigning forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Tom. Well, Venerable Augustus Tolton was a man of deep prayer. He surrendered himself to the will of the Lord and was rooted in prayer through various struggles and through his mission. Our guest, Alessandro DeSanto, is a man of great prayer too. And in our conversation with Alessandro, who's a co-founder of the app Hallow, you'll hear more about his own life of prayer and this wonderful tool that we all can take advantage of as we all grow in our own prayer life. So stay tuned for that. But before that, hit pause and we wanna hear from you. Remember every episode, we're going to share with you a question that we want you to weigh in on on social media. So the question for this episode is, how has prayer both comforted you and moved you to action during a challenging time? Share with us your thoughts on that. Use the hashtag alwaysonmission and tag us. Our handle is rcab underscore evangelize. Stay tuned for our conversation with Alessandro. Welcome back to Always On Mission, evangelizing in challenging times. Tom and I are joined by Alessandro DeSanto, co-founder and head of growth at Hallow. Hallow is a Catholic meditation app aimed to help us grow in holiness. Thanks so much for joining the podcast, Alessandro. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So why don't we start off by just share a little bit about yourself and your background. Absolutely. Uh, I was born and raised in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, grew up in a big Italian-American family. My mother was born and raised there, so lots of aunts, uncles, cousins. Uh, similar story on my dad's side. Uh, grew up, uh, we ran a bunch of pizza shops and uh, kind of local construction companies, so very traditional story there. Went to Catholic grade school and high school and ultimately college at Notre Dame, where I met what is now uh, the rest of the Hallow founding team. Uh, but we all kind of started our paths in different uh, careers. I actually started in finance, First in New York at a big investment bank, followed by a job in Chicago, uh, before kind of leaving that all behind and, and uh, launching Halo. So what inspired that for you and the others to develop Halo? And tell us a little bit about Halo. Absolutely, yeah. So a few years out of school, we're catching up on the weekend as friends. Uh, we were all in different career paths, as I mentioned, finance, consulting, marketing, government service, kind of your full spectrum of you know, professional service jobs. And, you know, there were two big series of challenges that we were facing in one way or another, just as we were catching up. And my version of the story is I was working seven days a week, 90 plus hour work weeks, and just really stressed 
uh, about that. It's a, a challenging day-to-day life and was looking for some sort of peace and calm in my life. Um, I ended up finding my way into secular meditation by recommendation of, of friends and coworkers. Um, Headspace and Calm, listeners may have heard of as secular meditation apps that have become very popular recently. And it's basically body scanning, breathing exercises. The way I describe that experience is that it was helpful in that it's physiologically healthy for a human being to sit still and breathe deeply for 10 minutes. As a matter of medical principle, your heart rate will go down. Uh, but the more quote unquote peace that I was creating in everyday life, more deeper questions related to purpose and vocation started to, to creep up in that space. And that clearly wasn't addressed by the secular meditation experience. On the other hand, other uh, members of the group, Alex and, and others, part of the team, were dealing with kind of a crisis of faith moment where, you know, we're out of school, you know, weren't going to mass with either family at home or friends at school. And in uh, Alex's case, was getting married. And so, it's, you know, time to figure out what I believe in type stuff. And um, for him, uh, he had bounced between atheism and, and Catholicism based on what he would describe as whatever the last YouTube video he watched, whether that was Sam Harris or Scott Hahn. So a uh, pretty wide range. But for him, prayer was interesting and that it kind of, uh, as a proof of the existence of God, uh, you know, you're supposed to be able to talk to this guy. So uh, let's, let's give it a shot. Um, and so from two different groups of uh, perspectives, we came together around this idea of, is there a uh, meditative tradition in the church? Because we had tried Headspace or Calm, um, but that is authentically Catholic and, and focused on Christ. And so we went down this path of talking to former rectors, uh, many of whom laughed at us when we asked, does the church have any of this meditation stuff? Uh, their, their common response was, uh, yeah, we've only been doing it for like 2,000 years. You know, it's, it's called prayer. It's called contemplative prayer, meditative prayer. And so that exposed uh, us to things like Electio Divina, meditating on the scripture, the examine, uh, reflecting uh, on your day, looking for moments of what the Jesuits would call consolation and desolation, and many other techniques. And that was just life-changing for us. Um, in, in terms of incorporating those into our daily prayer experience. Ultimately, in the next couple months, we, um, out of, after reading out of books, closing our eyes, reading out of books, we thought, wouldn't it be awesome if there was a Headspace or Calm-like experience that was digital, mobile, could be with us all the time, audio-guided, so you didn't have to memorize all the different steps and words, so it was very accessible, uh, but authentically Catholic. And so we originally built the tool just for ourselves to use in our own lives. The more time we spent on it, um, our friends and family wanted to use it, and then ultimately we discerned a, uh, a call that we were um, being asked by the Lord to spend more time making it available as a resource for many other people to have the same types of life-changing experiences that we had uh, in prayer. So we quit our jobs, which is a whole other set of stories, but, uh, and, uh, and launched Hallow a few months later in December of 2018. So the idea is audio-guided contemplative prayer in a way that is accessible and offers a number of different techniques so you can find what works for you in, in your prayer life. That story really illustrates so beautifully how you all were in pursuit of truth and how you've really used your gifts and talents in service of that truth. So that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Absolutely. Alessandro, you mentioned that it's audio guided meditations and this sort of thing. Who is this intended for? Who are your expected users of this, this app? So this is one of the two really surprising elements of what we learned after launching versus what we expected before. Um, we expected the users to be kind of young Catholic professionals, you know, built by and for that audience. The resonance has actually been much wider. So if you look at our users between the ages of 18 and 35, 35 and 55, and 55 plus, the breakdown is almost even, 35%, 35%, 30% across over now 225,000 downloads across 50 countries. So pretty, pretty wide. Um, the intended purpose was a, an accessible way to engage in new forms of prayer or to dive deeper in a uh, personal relationship in an existing prayer habit. So my personal experience is I always believe deeply in the truths of the faith, uh, to Rosemary's point. I'm a big Thomas Aquinas fan, big fan of the Summa, but never had a deep sense of personal spirituality. So equally that group kind of diving deeper into something that you already believe in versus exploring something new. So what we found in the very wide set of age groups is that there's three kind of groups that uh, the current app is really resonating with. One 
the older you are, you tend to have a pre-existing prayer habit. Um, you do it because you're supposed to, you've always done it, but maybe it feels like at some points you're going through the motions. And so a way to dive deeper into what feels more like a personal two-way relationship. Um, the second group as you get younger uh, tends to be parents, uh, busy professionals, always on the run. Uh, I don't have time for a holy hour every day, uh, but a way to have, you know, five, 10, 15 minutes, or we even have some minute meditations, an accessible, like bite size, audio guided uh, approach tends to, uh, to. That's my group, the, the busy parent. I think my wife and I could use that option. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's awesome because you, you can like the, I don't have time and I don't remember the words or structure. That's no longer an excuse, right? You just press play. And we have, we have parents that drive when the world is back to normal, drive their kids to school in the morning. And in that five or 10 minute drive, press play while they're driving and everybody prays together. So that's the group number two. And then the third group tends to be younger and has heard of secular meditation and is really focused on mental health um, and has come into meditation in that way and has heard of headspace or calm, but wants to connect that more deeply with their faith. And so oftentimes have never even heard of Catholic meditation. And so combining those two concepts. So sorry, that was a long answer with a lot of different parts, but it's been surprising to see all those different groups emerge. No, that's really extraordinary how this single tool is appealing across the generations. I mean, I don't know about you, Rosemary, but whenever I see something that appeals to multiple generations, that to me sends the signal like this is something that has a universal appeal. So true. You know, when it, whenever whenever anyone can enjoy the same song or the same kind of a public event or like this, this prayer app, that sends a big signal. So thanks be to God that really is a sign that the Holy Spirit is... Um, is is moving and acting in what you're doing. And you know, uh, related to that, I'd like to ask you kind of about the timing of your development of the Hallow app. So you launched it in December 2018, from what I understand, you had 2019 to kind of fine tune it. But now here in 2020, the pandemic has hit. Uh, and you happen to have, <laughs> didn't happen, but you happen to have this incredible spiritual resource online. Tell us about the team's reaction when the pandemic hit? Yeah, I mean, God is good. So I'll just, I'll just start with that in terms of the fortuitous uh, being kind of in a place where we can really help people. Obviously, it's a tragic situation across the world, um, but being in a place where we can help, we're really thankful for that, uh, hopefully. Um, we often joke that uh, God does the hard work. Right? Like He introduces grace in people's lives. We just try not to mess it up too much. Um, but when we started realizing that dioceses across uh, the United States and elsewhere started suspending the public celebration of mass, we immediately jumped into, to, you know, started calling all the pastors we knew, bishops we knew, to see how can we be helpful. And so there are two big areas where we started, you know, working around the clock immediately to, to help people. The first was in the side of content. So uh, new uh, prayers, uh, new meditations to help people um, continue to develop their spiritual life with the absence of the sacraments. Uh, meditation on the prayer for spiritual communion is an obvious one. Uh, we can never replace the physical Eucharist, obviously, but in times of crisis, there's a rich tradition of spiritual communion, which I think I personally have learned a lot of lessons from that prayer in the last few months, a prayer that I've never prayed before, as well as things like we have a stuck at home playlist, uh, you know, 19 prayers on the power of trusting in God's will, uh, healing, forgiveness, things like that. Um, it was also, if you remember, Lent and Holy Week, so we had a bunch of content around that. Um, so just giving people a lot of uh, stuff to sink their teeth into. And then on the other functionality side, we realized people were becoming very isolated. And so whereas the app previously was very single player in that it was you and your own prayers, uh, we quickly developed uh, friends and family groups within the app where you can create private prayer groups with any number two to infinity number of people where you can share intentions, prayers, reflections, and continue that uh, faith community outside of, you know, that could equally be your family that's separated. It could be your Bible study group. It could be your parish group. It could be your friends. You know, I have, I think, five groups. Um, and so allowing people to connect and continue that community of faith. Now, how does that work to pray with somebody else through the app? So right now it's asynchronous, so not at the same time. Uh, so you create a group. Um, once you create, you invite people, as many people can join. And then so you can share intentions at any time. And then within the app, you can do two things when it comes to prayers. Um, you can either complete a prayer in the app, like the audio uh, at the end of the session, you can share that prayer to the group, and then it'll pop up in the group and people can say, oh, I want to pray that with you, and then hit play, the play button will be in the group, and then you can 
uh, engage in that prayer as well. You also can share reflections on those prayers uh, with one another, and they can be oriented towards the intentions or totally uh, separate. And then lastly, just recently, we launched the ability to actually schedule prayers for the group. So if you go to a specific prayer in the app and you say, we want to schedule the daily you know, gospel for tomorrow morning, uh, the Lectio Divina on the daily gospel tomorrow morning at eight o'clock, at eight o'clock, it'll come up for everyone. And you can you can pray together in that way. That's nice. I, I really like the idea of being able to uh, kind of have some uh, pr- committed prayer partners with whom you can share certain prayer intentions. I remember learning years ago uh, when I was a young adult at St. Clement's Shrine in Boston that people would just type in prayer intentions to the email list and you'd get 20 responses praying, praying, praying. This is before people use Facebook for that. But now this is a really nice way to just even have however many people you choose uh, or, you know, more intimately select to be prayer partners to join in, uh, you know, wherever two or three are gathered, you know, the Lord says, there I am in your midst. Absolutely. Just, just one point on that. I think it's, it's important to, uh, like, people ask, why can't I just use my group me or my, my Facebook group or my um, text group for that? And what we found from our users is that where there's a lot going on in a group, it can be helpful to have a separate space that is really focused on those very sensitive personal uh, intentions. And so, we try and offer that totally separate space that you can detach intentions from because they, they and I think that is smart given that right alongside your prayer request on Facebook there could be coming up some inflammatory article or whatever you know so that that is very wise and it's also psychologically wise to kind of create physical space between the things you're doing you know so very smart now tell me this Alessandro how uh, was your own faith affected in this challenging time how has it how has it changed yeah, it's been it's been huge difference. Some good, some some less great. Um, I live in Chicago uh, in an apartment, and so um, I think young millennials in cities tend to think, oh, you know, I can just I'm never going to be in my apartment, so I'm going to live life outside it. And especially in places like New York, where I used to live, and so that's proven to be not true. I'm spending a lot of time <laughs> in an apartment, and so first of all, you know, just the feeling of being alone, I think, is really. Um, made it challenging to just day-to-day psychology-wise. I think that's done two reasonably good things, though. Uh, One is that it's in the silence that we find God, right? I think the, the, when we think of Elijah going up to the mountain in 1 Kings, uh, you know, the the big earthquake comes by, the big fire comes by. God is not in the chaos, Um, although certainly God is everywhere, uh, so we can find him there. But it's in the whispering breeze that we, that we hear God's voice. And so taking this time where we're forcibly separated um, to just sit in silence with him. And that's the contemplative right, approach to prayer and realizing that monks voluntarily you know, seek that circumstance out in order to, to find him and, and find union with him. So uh, at first it was really hard psychologically and it continues to be hard from a social interaction perspective. But from a faith perspective, you know, it's me and God. And, uh, you know, I don't have to worry about the time of commute. And so I've actually become more consistent in prayer uh, because there's nothing else to do and you're alone. And it's kind of the same thing every day. So kind of two two sides of the coin there. Uh, the second thing I would call out is that, you know, life is hard without communion, without the sacraments. I think we take them for granted. We have our routines. Um, I really have a tough time connecting to live stream mass in the same way as Physical mass is obviously two very different things, but I, I can say that I don't honestly enjoy live streaming mass that much. Obviously, the homilies are great, but it just it just there's such a missing element. Um, so the prayer for spiritual communion has actually been really interesting. A, I've never uh, <clears throat> prayed it before, uh, and the line that always strikes me that we ask is to never let us be um, separated from Him again. And like when we really take that seriously, like I think it's hit home for me to think, you know, we should be asking that all the time. Like we we're, we should seek to be with God at all times, and it capitalizing on this kind of forced separation to realize how much we need Him uh, has been something really powerful to uh, kind of reflect on. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I I wonder if that has occurred to many out out there in our audience. Uh, the the fact that you know we can encounter God. And your prayer app certainly helps us do this. Encounter God anywhere and in any, any time, and uh, that He calls us to union with Him at every moment. You know, it, it, this is interesting. Both how this time has done this and the intersection with the app you've developed. 
Alessandra, this has been just so encouraging to hear your reflections on your own journey of faith and particularly in this pandemic and also the wonderful resource that Hallow provides each and every one of us in our own walk with the Lord. We want to close by asking you a question we ask all of our guests. What does it mean to you, Alessandro, to be always on mission? And how might you encourage others to evangelize in whatever way they're called and whatever gifts and talents they have to offer? Yeah, absolutely. The um, One of the questions I get a lot is like, isn't it how stressful was it to quit your job to go do this? You know, the, it was definitely the most difficult professional thing I've ever done going into my boss's office that I was had a good relationship with and say, Hey, uh, I'm going to put finance behind me and go start a prayer app. But I've actually not experienced any anxiety or stress at all about was that the right decision or am I doing the right thing every day? And that uh, a face value doesn't really address your question. But my response is if we just take the time every day and ask the Lord what he's calling us to do, uh, that like, that will address whatever we're going through, right? Like if we trust God and bring him into our lives, not because we want to abandon ourselves to him, but because he loves us so much that he gave us his only son to die for us, he actually wants what's best for us. And so when you incorporate just daily prayer and just, you know, asking yourself, Lord, what are you, what are you willing in my life? And, and how can I do that? All the other stresses of like, oh, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing enough? Am I, you know, wasting my life away? those tend to go away pretty quickly uh, when you, when you really trust the Lord. So uh, my first answer to that is just trust the Lord and, and ask him what he wants you to do, because you're not going to ever probably intuit yourself to the right answer unless you ask him. And then the, the second part is I think one of the great things that have come out of pastoral guidance over the past couple of years is just the focus on accompaniment, right? Like n- no organization in the history of the world has ever uh, grown just by walking up and hitting people in the head with their rule book. Right. We, we live through example. And, and that's how the early church grew. That's the example of the cross. And so simply walking with people, listening and living your life in a way that is emblematic of Christ's love, I think is the ultimate um, power in terms of evangelization and calling people to want uh, to live in a similar way. So ask God what he wants, because otherwise you're not going to know. And then just uh, focus on, on walking with those in your life and living an example of, of his love. What great advice, Alessandro. So I hope all the listeners, and I know that's helpful for myself to remember to just merely trust in him, ask for his will, and then focus on accompaniment. And then we're called to be faithful and trust the results to the Lord. So Alessandro, in these turbulent times, uh, what do you recommend on the Hallow app that might be of assistance to people? Absolutely. So I think there's a few things to call out here. There is a realization, I think, that starts with it's in solidarity that we are the body of Christ, right? So I think when we think about how to bring justice into the world, um, how we think about uh, standing with those who are facing injustice, the first point is, is always in solidarity, right? We give power uh, through our community uh, by coming together and, and assembling as the church. Uh, so I would, I would give, my first piece of reaction is to, to give a sense of togetherness, right? To reach out to people in your life who are being affected by the tumult of, of the modern world. And that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But realizing that you're not alone is the first part. And we, we talked a little bit about forming uh, communities and groups and, and realizing, sharing people the idea that they're not alone. So that's one thing I would start with. In terms of actual prayers, I think the rosary is really powerful here. So uh, because of the different mysteries, right, that we, that, we, that we go through each day and the different mysteries in so many unique ways you know, people pray the rosary every day and people ask, uh, you know, can't that get boring? But I think it's just so powerful how the different mysteries speak to us and reveal the truths of our faith in whatever we're going through at the moment. And so certainly times like this, the sorrowful mysteries can reveal uh, really deep truths uh, for us. So I would start there. The Chaplet of Divine Mercy, which is uh, what you can use your rosary for since you already have it out after the rosary, uh, is really powerful as well uh, for the sake of the sorrowful passion. That is a prayer that I think doesn't get a lot of spotlight. In, in the modern world, and the rosary kind of overshadows it a bit, uh, but I would definitely recommend, uh, I would recommend that. The third thing I would offer is we have a forgiveness playlist. Uh, so uh, the Hallow app is structured in a few different ways. We have daily prayers that rotate every day based on the um, prayer, like the gospel of the day or day of the week. So that Lectio Divina, Examine, uh, Divine Mercy Chaplet, Christian Meditation, etc. 
Then there's a section called pray lists, and these are organized by topic or themes, love, joy, hope, humility, gratitude. And within each one of those topics, there's seven to 15 sessions using the different techniques. And so the idea there is that if we're called to pray without ceasing, giving people a resource to pray through every you know, experience of, of everyday life. Um, I think the forgiveness pray list is really important um, because when we, when we realize Christ's call in our lives to embrace self-sacrificial uh, love to the point of death, that can really uh, help us not escalate into uh, really self-damaging cycles of, of uh, mental attitude around different things, asking for the power and grace to forgive those in our lives and always overcome with love. I think is a really powerful thing when there's injustice in the world. Uh, and the last thing I would just say is that prayer, I think, sometimes gets a bad rap during times of craziness because people say, oh, you're just praying. You know, why don't you actually do something? First of all, we believe that a prayer is powerful and that God does act as a consequence. But secondarily, when we look at the catechism, uh, which talks about the different forms of prayer, the, the point of meditative prayer is to understand the truths of our faith in light of our life so as to motivate the soul into action. And so good prayer always motivates uh, to bring real action into the world. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind as well, that we pray so that we can hear God's will, so that we can bring it into existence and, and always oriented towards action. So, well, Thank you for that, Alessandro. That was, those are some great suggestions. This has been just such a fun discussion. I really encourage everyone to check out Halo, download the app. Alessandro, could you close us in a prayer? Absolutely. Uh, I'll start with, uh, we have a little hallow prayer, and then, I'll, and then I'll add some at the end. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Lord, thank you for being with me always. Help me quiet my mind and heart so that I can hear your voice and follow your will. Extend your grace into the busyness of my life so that I may learn to be still and notice your presence. I pray for the courage to come to you, to share my burdens, and to listen to your voice. Help me trust in you so that you can hallow my life. Amen. Lord, help us to realize that we are called to be your face to all of those in our lives. Remind us of those that need our comfort and support the most during these challenging times. Give us the grace and courage to reach out to them and to bring your life, your love into their lives. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much to Alessandro, and thank you, all of you, tuning in. We want to remind you to subscribe to Always on Mission, Evangelizing in Challenging Times. If you're listening on Apple, please rate us, and we look forward to being with you next week. God bless.